we begin the third section of Kings. And this is the ministry of Elijah. So is at this point all this political turmoil, all this political chaos, assassinations, and civil wars, and idolatry is getting ramped up, and new evils are being brought in, and offerings to God are being taken back, and literally Israel is becoming like the Canaanites. And they are turning this from the Garden of Eden into a cesspool of depravity and immorality and evil and all this kind of stuff. It's at this point that God is saying, enough. Not that it was enough before, but now we've had these prophets that have kind of been here and there and here. And I told you, one of the prophets' primary job now that there's a king is they kind of step back from the people. Moses led the people as a prophet. Samuel led the people as a prophet. But when the people said we want a king instead, the prophet kind of stepped away from the people and began to minister only to the king. And he would speak the will of God to the king, and then the king would execute that will politically, economically, and socially, and, and laws, and that kind of stuff among the country. But when the king has become so evil, and so violent, and so oppressive, then the prophet steps back into the forefront on the stage and begins to speak to the people again. And it's judgment. And so this is the first time since the time of Samuel that we now have a prophet that's going to basically step in front of the king and overshadow him. And Israel has become so evil that God is now stepping in front of and overshadowing the king. The king was supposed to be the image reflecting God to the people. But now he's being hidden behind the prophet, and the prophet is going to bring judgment on the nation. And so even though the prophet's ministry is going to begin against the king personally in his own palace, it is going to move very publicly eventually to the entire nation of Israel as he deals with them. So that's this new section that we're entering into. The other thing you must understand is Elijah is going to develop this Deuteronomic prophet of Moses theme big time. And what you must understand is that through these next several chapters, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 14 through 20 says, And I will send another prophet just like Moses, and he will lead my people, and there will be no... Like Moses, remember, Moses was a prophet unlike anybody else. And the Bible make it very, made it very clear that there was, Moses was the greatest prophet that has ever lived before him and after him. And then the Bible prophesied that a prophet would come later who was just like Moses. Now, in hindsight, we know that is Jesus, but they don't know that yet. There's no real prophecy about the Messiah yet. The prophets haven't really gotten full gear on the, the Messiah yet language. There's little things here and there in some of the Psalms that David wrote, and there's brief hints in Numbers and Genesis of a ruler that will come from Judah, and he will establish the kingdom of God, but nothing messianic as deliverer and savior and conquering all evil and bringing redemption and all that kind of stuff. So Elijah is going to step on the scene, and his life is going to very much mirror the life of Moses. And the narrator is doing something intentionally here. He's letting you know that Elijah is the new Moses. Now, in hindsight, we know that Elijah's not. But if you're reading this for the first time ever, you're like, is this it? Is this it? Is this the long-awaited prophet? The parallels are not going to be chronological. It's not like Elijah's life is going to parallel Moses' life chronologically. Moses did this, and he did this, and he did this. 
Exactly. It's going to be scattered here and there. But many of the things that Elijah does is going to look a lot like Moses because the narrator is showing you that this guy is potentially it. And it makes sense in the context of how much evil there is in Israel. And now all of a sudden this phenomenal prophet shows up on the scene. One could very easily begin to think that this is it. Obviously, the people reading this in exile know that Elijah is not it because they're in exile. But what he's doing is that he's letting you know that this is what everybody would have felt. As they're watching this happen, Elijah right in front of their eyes, the prophets haven't really done miracles since Moses. If you really think about the prophets, they didn't do any miracles. Samuel didn't do miracles. Jehu didn't do miracles. We haven't seen miracles. But all of a sudden, Elijah is going to start doing miracles. And Elijah is going to stand up in front of the people. And he's going to have an exodus. And a lot of things, and this is going to let you know, this Moses-Elijah parallel is going to make you know, let you know that the original audience that was watching this stuff that with their own eyes happening around them in their own nation would have thought, this is that prophet. This is that prophet. He is finally here. And everything's going to change. So that's what you need to feel as you're reading this. Could this be the Messiah? Chapter 17, verse 1. Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As certainly as Yahweh God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be no dew or rain in the years of head unless I give the command. Yahweh told him, sorry, give me command. This is very interesting. Elijah starts off very suspect. We're so used to reading Elijah's story that we don't think about him being like maybe potentially a false prophet. Elijah comes from Gilead. Gilead is on the right side of the Jordan River in the Transjordan region. He is Tishbe from Tishbite. This is like Jesus coming from Nazareth. This is a nobody, nowhere, backwater town. And nothing important or significant comes from this part of the world. Later, we're going to learn that he comes out of the wilderness. He's kind of a wild, eccentric, crazy old man kind of a thing. And he wears hairy, he's hairy all over. He wears hairy goat skins all over. And he ties them to his body with a belt. And his hair is all wild. In fact, later in Second Kings chapter 2, he's going to be called Lord of the Hair. He's so hairy, full of hairy garments, and his hair's all wild, that he's called Lord of the Hair. And it's a pun that they, they, went, to Lord, they went to Lord of the House, but all, instead of going to Lord of the Hair. So, this, this, so he's a wild, crazy, eccentric, from the backwoods of West Virginia kind of a guy thing. And he comes on the scene. And normally when prophets are introduced, they have a specific calling from God, or they come in and say, the narrator specifically says God sent the prophet and they give a sign to validate their prophecy. But Elijah doesn't do that. There's no calling of God on Elijah's life. There's nowhere does the narrator say and God sent the prophet. And there's no sign that he gives. Basically, this idea is that they have just sitting in his palace this crazy, wild, eccentric old man just walks up to the throne and nobody knows who he is, where he's come from. And he says, there's going to be no rain in the land until I say so. That's another thing that makes you question Elijah. He doesn't say, thus saith Yahweh. 
He doesn't say until God says so. He says until I say so. And then like that, he just turns around and walks off. And the narrator induces that way because he wants you to feel what Ahab's feeling. Like, who is this guy? No prophet speaks like this. There's almost a sense of hubris. And as you keep reading, you get the sense that Elijah does have hubris. There is some arrogance and pride. Remember, the prophets are people called by God, but they're still human. They still had their own issues. They had their own struggles. We often think like the prophets get lifted up on pedestals so high in our minds and our churches when we're reading these things that we forget that they were still humans with their own faults and their own personality annoyances and all that kind of stuff. And there's plenty of things that we'd be like, dude, you're annoying. And, and Elijah seems to be set up as a prophet who has been used to having a lot of power from God and starting to go to his head a little bit. He's still godly, he's still righteous, and God's still using him, he's still a prophet of God, but there's a hubris that is going on in his life, and that's how he's being introduced. And that shouldn't be shocking to us. Even Paul, when we lift him up on these high pedestals, if you really read the book of Acts, you're like, ooh, Paul wasn't very gracious. He talked about grace a lot. But when Mark went on a mission trip with him and got malaria, and if you know anything about malaria, that knocks you on your rear end. And he quit halfway through the mission trip, and he went back home, and then Barnabas wanted to bring him again, and Paul's like, no, he's not committed to the plan of God. I'm not going to take him on a mission trip. The dude had malaria, Paul. Come on, show a little grace. So there's these, when you really read, these guys weren't. They had their problems, and the women had their problems. But God used them. Because deep down in their heart, they were like a David. They still loved God, and they were doing their best to pursue God, even with their faults. And that's what we're doing to do. If you just read these first couple verses, you're like, oh, this isn't right. There's no calling of God. The narrator doesn't tell us. And that sounds very arrogant to say, until I say so. And where did this guy even come from? And that's what the narrator wants you to feel as Elijah is introduced. It's not until verse 2 that it says, Yahweh told him, leave here and travel eastward. High out in the Kareth Valley near the Jordan. Drink from the stream. I have already told you the ravens to bring you food there. So he did as Yahweh told him, and he went and lived in the Kareth Valley near Jordan. The ravens would bring him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he would drink from the stream. It's not until verse 2 that we're told that God then commanded him to go to Kareth Ravine. But we still are not told that what he said was actually from God. Remember, the prophet showed up and commanded Rehoboam to stop attacking Israel. But that doesn't mean that Rehoboam was from God. And it doesn't mean that the and remember the man of God was from God, but he still screwed up and disobeyed God. So all we know is that this guy comes in with Hebrews and he says, it's not going to rain until I say so. And then God commands him to go somewhere else. But we still don't really know whether God has really commanded this or not. We have no idea whether these words are from God. Now, you're going to find out in verse 7 that when the streams started to dry up, there had been no rain in the land, Yahweh told him. Now you realize, oh. It still doesn't say that God is backing him on this. It just says that now it's coming true. And we know that the only way it could come true is because God controls the rain. So for the first time ever, you're now with this idea, okay, maybe he really did speak on God's behalf. This really is a prophecy from God. 
But it took seven verses to get to that point. Now, seven verses in our world doesn't seem like a very long time. But when you're used to being told right off the bat that God called the prophet, God sent the prophet, seven verses is a long time to wait for that. It's obvious he is a man of God, and it's obvious that he is a prophet called by God as you keep reading. But the fact that the narrator dragged it on for so long, and this sense of Hebrews keeps showing up over and over again, there's almost this sense that, but Elijah has allowed some of this power to go to his head. I mean, usually God makes it absolutely clear. God called the prophet. This guy is like, there's a lot of gray with him. And in Elijah, there's so many things written on Elijah because nobody knows what to do with this guy. And yet in cynical class, it just sounds like, oh, he's an awesome prophet. But in the scholarly world, they're like, ah. And most scholars will say, yes, he's a man of God. He's working by God, that kind of stuff. But they're saying, yeah. But just like David had some huge issues, so did this guy. So did this guy. And that shouldn't surprise us. It surprises us when we have gone based solely on our cynical understanding of these people in the Bible. But when you really understand who humanity is and what the Bible's really been saying about them, it shouldn't surprise you that we have another screwed up leader. Yes, he's a man of God's own heart. Yes, he's obeying God. Yes, he's speaking the word of God. But the narrator's trying to intentionally reveal there are faults. There are faults. And that should not surprise you by now. Maybe with Moses, when you're in like the second book of the Bible but not by this time. So where do we see the Moses theme? All right, notice a couple of things are going. Ahab is set up as the new Pharaoh. He's a new Pharaoh oppressing his own people. He's enslaving them just like Solomon did. And he's erecting idols and all that kind of stuff. Now we have this prophet that comes out of the wilderness, just like Moses did. Elijah comes out of the wilderness, just like Elijah did. He comes Literally from the wilderness. Now remember, the Transjordan River is not considered the promised land. Remember Gad and Reuben and half of Manasseh wanted to settle there. But they were never allowed to settle there. And Moses allowed them to settle there but never consulted God. In fact, what is interesting is that Gad and Reuben and half of Manasseh are the first to disappear in the literature. They're the first ones to be overtaken by Aram. They're the first ones to disappear. They actually disappear from the whole historical record before Assyria ever shows up and takes any by activity. And there's this idea that you weren't a part of the chosen land, the, the promised land to begin with. And you specifically chose land outside the promised land, outside the garden. And they became the first to become isolated and separated from their brothers. They launched into a civil war. They became the first to disappear in the historical records as well. And that's part of their long-term judgment from God. And Elijah comes from that. So he is literally the Moses coming from the wilderness, outside the promised land. And he walks up to the new Pharaoh, and the first thing he says is, there's going to be a plague on you, just like Moses with the ten plagues. And he pronounces a plague and it's going to be a judgment of God against them. Now, the next thing it says is that he moved eastward. And remember, every time you move eastward, it's bad. Bad. Because you're moving away from the garden. Then he goes to the Kareth Ravine. The Kareth Ravine is right up there. 
It's on the eastern side of the Jordan River. It's a little wadi that juts out from it. So what he does is he moves eastward and he exits the promised land. And he leaves and goes into the wilderness. And when he goes in the wilderness, what happens to him? He's immediately led to a stream of water, just like the first thing the Israelites came to after the exodus was water. And then he goes in and there he's fed by God with bread from the sky. Just like they were received bread, manna, from the sky. So he is being fed water and bread from the sky, just like the Israelites. So this is a whole other wilderness journey. And not only that, he's being fed by ravens. This is significant because ravens don't even feed their own young, let alone feeding a human. And so it suggests here that this is a supernatural act. The Kareth ravine literally means cutting off as well. And so not only is God cutting off the rain, but he's also cutting off his own people from the covenant blessings. Because no dew or rain, those two words used together are only ever used in Deuteronomy of God providing dew and rain if you're obedient and withholding the dew and rain if you're disobedient. And so God is cutting them off from the blessings and he's cutting off the rain as a judgment. Not only that, ravens are considered unclean animals because they eat flesh, carry on, and they eat carcasses and stuff. And so what God is communicating here is that Israel has now become unclean. And Elijah is becoming unclean too. If he's being fed by unclean birds, he's becoming unclean. And God is showing that the entire nation has become clean and their own sins, which means the entire nation is under the judgment of God. And so all this is showing you that this is a new exodus. But what is different between this exodus and Moses's? There's two major things that are different. Yeah, he's all by himself. The point is, there is no righteous people who follow Elijah the new prophet in the exodus. Israel is so corrupt that Elijah literally goes on his own. And the idea here then is that Israel's become the new Egypt. Israel's the new Egypt. Basically, what you should be now seeing this is this is not the promised land anymore. I mean, it is, but in a metaphorical, literary device kind of a way, it's not the promised land anymore. Egypt is the new Exodus. Elijah's the new prophet, Moses. But he exits eastward out of the promised land, which is bad. It's judgment from God. He's sending you away from him. He makes his own prophet unclean, showing that the entire nations become unclean, and nobody follows the prophet out, and even the prophet seems a little suspicious. And everything is negative here. It's a negative exodus. And that's a huge deal when God allows his own prophet to become unclean in order to make an illustration, in order to make a point about Israel. 